Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, hair designer, Jamie Lee McIntosh, joins us to talk about their podcast, The Last Looks, and also their work on Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode. So sit back and relax as we jump into the conversation with Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Honoured. It must be weird being on the other side as you host a podcast called The Last Looks to be sort of interviewed by other people now, right? It is weird, but I'm enjoying this so far. (laughs) I guess as well, like you don't have to worry about prepping or getting questions ready. You just have to sit back and see uh, see what I've come up with. Yeah, it's kind of good to see what my guests go through, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah, be on the other side. I think as well, I think you might have been the easiest one to research and get questions together just because there's so much online that you do that it's, yeah, it just makes it easier to be like, oh, okay, well, that's actually a really good question. I'm going to, I'm going to sort of pick her brain on that one. <laughs> you sound like my mum. She loves to Google me. <laughs> I'm always like, Mom, dog, it's embarrassing. Her parents are always going to be the, the biggest cheer, cheerleaders, right? But it's quite funny oh. that she Googles you. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I would hate to be that person, you know, if her computer breaks to see what she's been like. You know, when people like checking, it's like, what have you downloaded? And it's like history. Jamie Lee, Jamie Lee, Jamie Lee, Jamie Lee. And it's like, oh, okay, uh, maybe we should call the police on this one. Uh, <laughs> But before we jump into um, talking about your work on Oppenheimer, let's talk a little bit about your podcast, which is called The Last Looks, uh, which you sit down with various people in the hair and makeup department uh, who are still working now, who are retired. And then there's also some bonus episodes where I think you spoke to a script supervisor, a grip, and there might be one or two other people that I can't get off the top of my head. So apologies on that. No, you're good. That's pretty much it. And I also do a Oscars special annually. So the five um, hair and makeup teams that have been nominated for Oscars, I chat to them as well. Before I jump into my question, I'm curious, mm. what happens when you're nominated for an Oscar? Do you do an episode about yourself? <laughs> Listen, <it's, laughs> it hasn't come up and I'm not sure if it's going to. So we'll 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 figure that out one that one out when it um if it happens. Never say never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) That'd be quite fun. So, Jamie, how did you do this? Well, Jamie, I did this. I did it like this. (laughs) It seems like it would be a little bias, and I'm not sure if it should happen. (laughs) Oh, Jamie, it's been a (laughs) pleasure being with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure being with me as well. (laughs) (laughs) But let's start from the beginning. What made you want to start the podcast up? Um, I guess being a podcast listener and wanting to move a little bit away from listening to so much true crime podcasts (laughs) and getting super paranoid that someone's hiding out in you know my bushes in the yard or going to kill me and my husband going you need to stop listening to those 
terrible podcast and me going, yeah, it's true, I do. I would bring home, like work home a lot as well, like wig work and stuff over the weekends or prepping and whatever. And I would want to listen to stuff. And I was just like trying to find podcasts that were talking to people that do what I do and the makeup departments. And I could find bits and pieces of stuff out there, but they were more makeup artist driven and I was just like I'd like to hear from some hair people because I'm a hairstylist and I was complaining and bitching to my husband about it and it was just like I think um, half the planet during COVID shut down that's when I started it because I had access to (laughs) so many different hair and makeup people because we were all of us were not working and yeah I just started kind of documenting their career journeys which I'm not sure has been done before so I think that that's great to have a database of all of that information somewhere for years to come. And um, I will say that when my husband was saying you should start your own podcast, I just kept saying to him, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, no, because it's at that point was so far out of my wheelhouse. I was just like, I'm too shy to do that. I can't do that. I can't possibly do it. And he was just like, well, maybe just try it with a friend that you trust and just see how it goes. And it may not go anywhere. You may do it and be like, oh God, that was horrible. I don't ever want to do it again. And yeah, I chose my first guest and I can still hear it in my voice when I listen back how nervous I sound (laughs) on the recording. But yeah, it kind of worked and I found a little confidence and just kept going. And now it's a monster I can't stop. Well, I, I know exactly how you feel in terms of listening to murder podcasts because I had that as well. Yeah. And <laughs> the worst is if you're like at home alone and you hear something like creak and you're like, oh my gosh, this is just like episode 55 of this of this podcast and it's going to happen to me, isn't it? And you're like... I don't want to be... I don't want to end up in a true crime podcast, put it that way. I don't want to be... <laughs> I don't want to be the main subject in a, in a true crime podcast one day. That would suck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be a Netflix special, please. Anything but <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. But but it's also funny as well, your husband uh, encouraging you to do it. But then I think that's like a slight my masterstroke suggestion in terms of just get one of your friends, somebody that you'd be comfortable with. Mm. Because then, as you said, if you're nervous or you could take a bit more extra time with them, you have that sort of a good repertoire of them. So you can kind of just let it all flow. Yeah, absolutely. He was coming from that side of it as well, that he just knew he could help me with all the technical side of things, um, because that's just him. Uh, He's like my um, personal, yeah, IT person. Um, (laughs) And then he also would come to me, like come with me yearly um, to the Oscars symposium. So the day before the Oscars happen, they have the five teams, the hair and makeup nominees and they each have turns of like chatting about their work and what went into them producing the work for the film that they're nominated for and I was always surprised at how interested he was in going because he you know it's not his world but he's just like oh it's fascinating I love listening to it I thought it would just be hair and makeup people that wanted to hear about it but um that kind of gave me the push as well because he was just like it sounds like an interesting podcast like do it I think if I'd come up with something like, I want to talk about toenails, he would have been like, yeah, no, don't do that. That's a bad idea. You say that, but I bet you it would. <laughs> loads of people. Start, to... Yeah, there'll be loads of people <laughs> like if like under pseudonyms, probably subscribing and downloading. <laughs> um, so 
Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. He could be onto something. We'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> when when I was looking at uh, the guests that you had uh, most oh. recently, you had uh, V Neil on, who's created some classic looks like Beetlejuice, uh, Edward Scissorhands, and it's like sometimes I guess like as like the average Joe film goer, you kind of don't realize how much goes into it, especially mm. like how much R and D and what for for us we see the finished product and be like wow, but then. What we don't see is like the blood, sweat and tears that go into it. And because these people are your peers and work in different countries, how do you go about trying to like sort of extract that information to create your episodes? Just because each person's experience is so different and also people, each crew member do different things like prosthetics, for example, or hair and makeup or hair itself or might specialize in making false teeth or even contact lenses for crew members not crew cast teeth sorry I think with the podcast I started off going a little bit back and forth with between um someone's career journey and then every now and again I'd do an episode that was about a show that they had worked on and that side of things I kind of started stepping away from because I started receiving more and more emails from PR people wanting me to interview their clients because award season was coming up and they wanted to pimp out their client for their work on a specific show. And I didn't want to do that because I felt like if I do that for one person, I have to do it for every single person who's in the running for something. (laughs) And it just didn't feel fair. So I kind of moved away from talking about specifics of actual shows or films and getting into the technical side of things I found kind of difficult to do with audio when you don't have a visual reference to speak of so I just wanted to start kind of concentrating on their career journey and what they love about what they do what the challenges are that they come across any kind of stories that they have and I think it just I've heard back from listeners about how especially ones who are starting in the industry, they just find it fascinating. Like, you know, they're trying to get in. So they're hearing all these different ways and tales and stories of how everybody gets in because everyone finds a different avenue or a different way. So I think that's inspiring to them that it doesn't matter what background you come from there, if there's a will, there's a way. And then also just the challenges and what people come up against, um, people can relate to it and it's just they feel not so alone. It might not be something that people actually speak about in the moment in the job with their peers, but um, they can kind of look back and reflect on stuff a little bit differently and then someone else hears that and they're like, oh my God, I've had that same issue. That's um, I'm not the only one. Because it is a difficult industry to be in, so it's kind of nice to hear that other people also struggle at times and find it hard or I guess just find it incredibly rewarding at the same time so yeah with all these sort of materials now online there is a lot we can learn from each person and as you said I've had that same problem for everybody listening uh, you could probably hear Jamie has an accent and you're from New Zealand which has its own sort of film industry hub there with stuff like Lord of the Rings the Hobbit uh, TV series I think they even have something to do with maybe avatar as well but because you're from you're from the other side of the world coming into hollywood and being such a close-knit industry mm. how did you manage to break in at the beginning um i think because i went from high school into salon training so or salon i've changed how i say things to 
be <laughs> understood by Americans. <laughs> so worked in a salon and then I remember watching a behind the scenes film called Full Tilt Boogie. And it was the behind the scenes movie about from Dust Till Dawn. And you saw all the crew members, you saw the makeup stuff happening, all that type of thing. And I was just like, fuck, that looks cool. I wonder if there's some way I can do that. So I went to makeup school in New Zealand. And in New Zealand, you do both, like the UK, do both hair and makeup. And then, yeah, went to makeup school and ended up getting my tutor, I think, recommended me for a trainee position on a TV show that was happening in Wellington. And at first, because I, I was, I went back home after my makeup course and I was working part-time in a barbershop just trying to figure out like, okay, now I've done this course, how do I get to where I want to be? So just, you know, doing the daily grind there. And um, I got a phone call at the barbershop. I don't know how they tracked me down. (laughs) And asking me if I wanted to um, come down to Wellington, which was what, like a eight hour drive or something away um, and do this job as a trainee. And I was just like, oh, listen, I, I, you know, I can't because it was a Wednesday, I think. And they wanted me to start on Monday. And I was just like, that just, I I don't think I can do it. And kind of went back into work and kept cutting hair. And then another phone call comes in and it's my tutor from the makeup school. And she's just like, you turned it down. And I was like, yeah, I can't. And she's like, you have to figure out how you can. She's like, this is it. This is that moment. And I was like, oh. I was like, but it's Wednesday. They want me to start work on Monday. She's like, I don't care. Do whatever you have to do to get down to Wellington and start on Monday. And I was just like, oh, shit. Okay. So I pretty much hung up and then walked over to my boss at the barbershop. And I was just like, my last day is going to be on Friday. <laughs> and I packed up the car and I drove down to Wellington. So that's just how that started and Wellington is where Peter Jackson does his films. Um, So King Kong was the first film that I was able to work on just as a day player. So going in to do background and then the designer from that and supervisor um, liked me enough to hire me on other stuff. So Rick Finlater, who did the first avatar, got me into day play on that and do yeah, hair and makeup on background for Avatar. And then Peter Swords King, who did King Kong, invited me back for the Hobbit films. So I did all the Hobbit films with them. And yeah, that's just kind of how that started. But then it was after the Hobbit films, which was like three years of my life, (laughs) I moved to the States, to LA. And that move was hard. It was not an easy transition. It was starting again because I knew one one makeup artist here um, who happened to be the woman who actually hired me on that first job as a trainee in Wellington. She had moved to LA. So I stayed in her spare room for a little while and she gave me an idea of how things work in Los Angeles and there's a union here. So... I was lucky enough to be working on King Kong and the Hobbit films and Avatar and stuff like that in New Zealand, but there's no way I was going to be able to do that in LA if I wasn't in the union. So I had to start pretty much again. So working on student films and 
you know, getting paid $50 a day to do short films and music videos and all that type of stuff. So it, and also going in for interviews for these things and them looking at my resume and going, why are you even applying for this job? Like you worked on The Hobbit. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> I'm new to town. So I'm needing to do <laughs> these jobs. And I think I might have even missed out on a couple of things because, because of that. I almost felt like I needed to kind of take it off my resume. But, you know, perseverance and... There's nothing like knowing what it's like to work on decent productions to then like bigger budget things to then go back to humble beginnings to make you hungry to get back to where you were. So I think it's crazy to think that people would look at your CV and be like, you work on Hobbit, what are you doing here? When it could be more of a like, surely that person would be such a good asset to your team. There was um, that. There were a few people that were just like, oh my God, I can't believe we've nabbed you. This is great. And I was one facet that they didn't need to worry about. They're like, okay, she's been doing this for a while. She knows how to do, you know, hair and makeup or hair or whatever it was. And they could just have that faith in me immediately. And then there were others who I think were just freaked out by it and just like, this is weird. (laughs) But yeah, but then I also had to choose um, when I moved to the States, because if you're in the union, you don't do hair and makeup, you only do one. So I had to choose. And I just, I was told that as a hairstylist, I would get more work because there were less hairstylists and makeup artists. And I think I just wanted to kind of choose the direction of like going back to my roots so fresh out of high school I was doing hair so I was just like no I'll stick with the hair side of stuff fair enough (laughs) I still kind of like sometimes it's difficult for me to get my head around people because in the UK it's hair and makeup but then yeah as you said sometimes for me to get a head around that one person does hair another person does makeup but it does vary it does vary here as well um Mm. but to go back to podcast, sorry, I know we slightly sidetracked there. How do you prep for your episodes? Because there'll be times where you've mentioned that there's people that you know that mm. come on. So there's a repertoire there and things could flow. But then there's sometimes people that you don't know. How do you prepare for the people that you don't know to make them feel comfortable and for you to feel comfortable to talk to them? Everybody's different. Even with the people that I know and have worked with, um, I actually get to the end of the episode and I'm like, holy shit, I didn't know half of that stuff about you or even any of it. Because it's just so funny. You don't sit on set and kind of talk about how you got into that industry. It's not like a um, common topic. So yeah, you do instantly have that, hey, how are you going? It's great to chat to you thing. And then there's that comfort level there. But also a lot of them don't, do this every day so they are a little nervous um they don't want to be led down the wrong garden path of like what is Jamie Lee getting me into here but I think I just I send out bullet points of just what the discussion might be just so because I know I like to be able to think about things beforehand like think about answers of what I might want to say um some people look at them some people completely ignore them because they're just very good at speaking off the cuff And then just before we start recording, we just have a bit of a chat. And most of the time, it's so weird, but I feel like I've kind of already known them. I think because I normally know somebody that they know or I'm familiar with their work or so there's just a, and we do the same things, you know, we work in the same industry. So there's a little bit of a connection there already because we understand the grind and we understand the job, I suppose. 
but yeah, we just have a little chat beforehand and then kick into it. And I would say nine times out of 10, those ones that are very nervous in the beginning um, or have expressed that they're nervous in the emails leading up to it, they get to the end. And when I push, you know, stop on the record thing and they kind of breathe out, they're like, oh. and then they're like, oh, that was so much more fun than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it's like, great. <laughs> it was, there's nothing to be nervous about. We're just chatting. So yeah, that's always a good feeling when someone finishes and they're like, oh, I, I like that. That was nice. I think mm. those guests are always the best. The, the ones who are most nervous and then mm-hmm. afterwards they're like, oh, I had a lot of fun. And you think, and you can tell with when you're talking to them, the sort of energy that they're bringing and even the conversation that they're having with you. Because there's always, as you said, like, oh, I didn't know half this sort of stuff. But then you can peel back on the cuff on the sort of answers that they give. Mm-hmm. Just as a final question as well, before we move on to Oppenheimer, who would your who would be your ideal guest? My ideal guest? I well, <laughs> is it just lazy if I say all of them kind of are? That's why I reach out to them. <laughs> um, uh, I, I love all of them for different reasons. I mean, my prize pig guest would be Rick Baker. Um, okay. He is a multi-Oscar winning special effects makeup artist. That is, he's kind of like the rock star of makeup artists um he's retired now but i think it's just like you know having v neil on and it's taken me 60 odd episodes to kind of lock her in and i think half of that was my confidence i just wanted to go into into an interview with her feeling confident that i knew what i was doing in that situation v neil she speaks at a lot of conventions and does a lot of public speaking and all that type of stuff so i knew that she probably had more experience in this realm than i did so i wanted to make sure i was kind of i could match her before interviewing her so she didn't feel like i was wasting her time i suppose (laughs) so there's some guests you kind of work your way up to i wasn't going to go in immediately at my you know first season to get the the heavy hitters I, I think that makes it probably even more scarier knowing that they talk at these events and conferences and you're sort of having that one-on-one because it's always because when you go to these things it's always in a group so there'll be certain people who would be too shy to ask questions and then there's others who are mm. who ask questions or even have statements for you rather than questions so then yeah. going into something like this if you know hats off to you for being able to do that and go in there and, and produce uh, good episodes well I hope so you also get to that point that's just like like uh, when interviewing her I was just like oh god this is probably just I don't even know if I'm going to get anything out of her that she hasn't shared already just because she has done so many interviews and and everything so it's just kind of like I don't know you just go in and do your best <laughs> I always have that thought as well when I get guests on because you have that you're right in terms of like what's new that I can get. But I think we we have an advantage because we can look back at what they've asked. And if there's something of interest that piques your interest, you can pull that thread later on when you're doing your recording as one of your questions. Yeah. And I always found that's like the most the most sort of interesting part of it because they may say say something and you think actually I want to expand on that because I'm quite mm-hmm. interested in how something gets made or what actually they did to create that but I t- I tend not to listen to too many people who interview the same people because I don't want to 
have that in the back of my mind of like I don't want to ask the same questions or find mm. out the same things but eventually unfortunately law of averages it happens yeah but no that's the last looks podcast for anybody who wants to find it it's on youtube apple podcasts uh spotify all that streaming and then all the other streaming platforms thank you <laughs> yeah. there we go i got that <laughs> but now we move on to oppenheimer which yeah. has come out past few weeks uh, with all the famous sort of memes with Barbie Heimer and Barb yeah. Heimer even and them going against one another and whatnot mm-hmm. and then seeing all these viral stuff on the internet which is like which is great to see because it's so good that people are going back to the cinemas to watch these these kind of films yeah. both Barbie and on Oppenheimer yeah the funny thing is is that <laughs> when we were shooting Oppenheimer the discussion came up because we found out that what that Barbie's release date was going to be the same date. So, and that's why we were shooting. And there's no way I could have imagined that it turned into what it did at all. Like I was just like, oh, okay, so Barbie and Oppenheimer will come out on the same day, whatever, who cares? <laughs> Apparently a lot of people. <laughs> but I'm just kind of curious who made that first meme because they started some type of avalanche. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it was somebody in like film publicists who are just saying, look, let's just create a meme of this and see what happens. Let's just spitball ideas. I mean, I did it. I went to Oppenheimer and then went to Barbie. Yeah, I did that as well. And (laughs) Oppenheimer first, then Barbie, because you can start the day right and then have a nice evening with Barbie. But, um, But how did the project come about and what was it that made you want to take it on? Funnily enough, I was in a period of the year where I was having downtime and I'm quite strict about my downtime because when I work, it's work is everything just with the hours that we do. And normally I'm department heading. So it's a lot. So when a job finishes, I like to have, you know, some strict kind of a month or, or something just completely off and not even I don't even want to know what my next job is because as soon as you know what your next job is you're thinking about it and in my mind if I'm thinking about it I'm working and I remember we had gone to the beach and we were sitting we pulled into a gas station and my agent called me and I was just like why is she calling me (laughs) I picked up the phone and she immediately started apologizing she's like I'm so sorry darling I know that I you know I'm not supposed to be contacting you about work but Something has popped up and I think maybe you might want to hear about it. And I was just like, fine, what is it? And she's like, well, so Christopher Nolan is crewing up for his next film and just wondering if you might be interested in going in for an interview. I was like, of course, it's Christopher Nolan. (laughs) (laughs) But funnily enough, my husband's filling the, um, the van with gas and all I said to her was just like, yeah, let me talk to the husband about it because um, she gave me start dates and all that type of stuff. And it was kind of earlier and sooner than I had anticipated with having time off. And I said, but honestly, if I don't at least interview with Christopher Nolan, my husband's going to freak out at me because he's a big Nolan fan. Um, and she just laughed. And I think I spoke about, I spoke spoke to her about it the other day. And she's just like, I was so tempted to try and find your husband's number so I could talk him into talking you into doing it. <laughs> but yeah, so I went in for an interview and 
I think like every interview, I kind of, I don't, weirdly, I don't get nervous because I just think at that point too, I hadn't read the script. So I didn't know anything about really what it was. I knew that it was about Oppenheimer. So I could do a little Google research on who that dude was. (laughs) And I just kind of always go in with thing of like, either they're going to want me to do it or they're not. And if they don't, then that's cool. Like, obviously, you know, I'm a bit of that, I guess whatever's meant to be meant to be type of type of deal so I was just like okay yeah cool I'll go in for this interview get there go in I, I probably in there for I'd say like 45 50 minutes and most of the time we're just like chatting and laughing it was Chris Nolan and his wife and producer um Emma and yeah we were just talking about um he wanted to chat about other directors that I had worked with and asking me how, what that experience was like and all that type of thing. And he was pretty fascinated because he, uh, I had just come off Babylon. So he was just really interested in how working with Damien Chazelle was and he admires his work. So yeah, it was a, it was just nice to kind of chit chat and not be feeling like I was, I guess, being fully interviewed as such. And then we spoke about Oppenheimer and the character and Killian and a little bit about hair and all this type of stuff. And then, that was that. Embarrassingly, not something I've told very many people, but I couldn't figure out how to get out of the room that we were in, <laughs> which was incredibly embarrassing because I walked into this little conference room. And then when I turned around to walk out, there was like frosted glass and then a panel, like there was all these panels on the wall. And I was just like, which one of these moves? And I couldn't figure it out. And it was very embarrassing. But yeah, that's pretty much how the job came about. And then I was driving home from that interview and my agent called and she's just like, they want you. And I was like, that was 10 minutes ago that I left. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And she's like, well, now you have to decide whether you want to do it or not. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> and I was like, well, I can't not do it. So yeah, exciting. So I just to interject, I I had that experience for my first ever interview in film was that I had to get into a building I didn't mm. have any entrances <laughs> so it was like I weren't sure where to go and then you're just like how can you explain this like in your case how do I get out and in my case how do I get in to yeah, you're like, is make this sure a, is this a trick building are they testing me right now are there cameras what's happening <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's like an episode of punk or something I don't know what's going on I couldn't believe it I was just like I think mum was the first person that I told that to and she's like oh my god you're so much like me <laughs> And I was like, it was so embarrassing. But I just turned around. Of course, I didn't pay attention to when I walked into the room. And then I turned around. I'm just looking at all these panels going, which one's the door? Like there was no door handle. So I tried to do something and I just stepped back and put my hands up and went, I don't know how to get out of here. (laughs) I pretty much just left the interview just laughing out loud at myself. So I don't know if that um, flinched the deal or what, but... (laughs) I think he inceptioned you. He was just like, <laughs> he, he didn't realise it, but he, he did it. He somehow did it. He totally did it. I guess he saw that I could laugh about it and um, maybe that was a positive. I don't know, but it was embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I think as well, if you, those, they, when you have an, an interview that's not really an interview, just more of a conversation, hmm. I think those are always going to be the best kind of sort of vibe like as the kids say vibe check for to see if people will get on and work and Mm. sort of understand what's going on and what not necessarily is expected of you but the 
Oh, okay. I can see where we're going to go with this. I can know that if I need to speak to uh, Jamie about something, I can just go in or we can talk about it. And, you know, if she doesn't agree, I can always just blackmail her about not being able to leave the office. (laughs) And we can go from there. I think there's something to be said for just answering stuff honestly too, because it it was, you know, he's asking me about my experiences on other jobs and I didn't, I didn't sit there and go, oh my gosh, it was the most incredible experience of my life. I just really, do you know what I mean? I didn't, I was just like, oh yeah, that was a hard one. Like, and this is why. And, but I had so much fun. It was challenging, but it was awesome. And, you know, just like chatting like that instead of I don't know. I was just very, I'm a bit of a straight shooter. So I, he, I assume he appreciated that. I think there's always going to help though, if you're honest. I think that's yeah. when people probably respect you more because you're not going to beat around the bush and just say, look, I can, I can't do this. Or this was actually hard because of this. And I think with, with honesty as well, it's like you're going to, um, I think whoever you're working with will realize that actually they've learned something from what they're working on in terms of Oh, they know how to do this. They know how to do that. They don't have to worry about this. There is something I always say in an interview as well to a director is that, and this is, I, I don't know if I should say it, but I totally do. Um, Cause I just want it to be known up front is that I always let them know that just naturally my style of work is more in realism I'm like I can do perfect Hollywood if you if that's what you want I said but naturally I do tend to lean towards things being hopefully more on the real side so you just gotta let me know aesthetically like what you're after because if you want the no hair out of place look it's like I can do it I just have to know that that's what you want otherwise I'm going to lean into realism and there's going to be flyaways and a bit of fluff of hair here and there and you know, stuff like that. So I'm always upfront about that in my interviews as well. Yeah, and that probably helps with, as a director, to actually visualise what they want for their characters mm-hmm. and how to sort of get what they want on screen. Um, I think as well, especially with like a film like Oppenheimer, where it's based on real people. So, mm. in, you know, in your research, you will see how people looked and how their hair sort of sat um, in different periods of their life. But like, where do you begin with your research for each look? And then how do you mix the history of the time period with what the actor has in mind? I mean, research, uh, as soon as you get a job and you read the script and you find out who's in it, you're immediately starting to Google and research. And I love buying... Um, secondhand books and all that type of stuff. So there's the research of just the general period or periods as Oppenheimer is in different, throughout different years, um, getting an idea of the overall kind of look of the time, um, which is incredibly helpful, of course, for um, those characters who may not be a historical figure or for the background. And then there's the research on the specific characters. So because in Oppenheimer, there were so many historical figures in it, but Chris also didn't want, he didn't want to have like a a carbon copy of the historical figure. Um, It was kind of like having a melting of of the two. So because he wasn't, when he was casting, he wasn't necessarily, you know, trying to just find someone who looks exactly like, that historical figure. Um, but if we could do things hairstyling wise, that would just kind of lean them into that look or push them a little bit further 
to look a little closer to them. It was more just trying to find the essence of them and um, doing whatever little tricks and bits and pieces we could do to help them look in the same realm. And some characters more than others. And I think it just kind of depended on how much of a public figure they were. I think there's a lot of characters and historical figures in Oppenheimer that a lot of people, if you didn't have direct knowledge of these people and that whole story, you probably wouldn't know what they look like. So we had a little more freedom there to, if it was a guy, it was just like, okay, we'll just, you know, we'll cut your hair a similar length and and style it in a similar fashion, but it doesn't have to be exactly the same texture or exactly the same color, but we'll just get you in that realm. And each actor was different. I mean, they all come came in. I've never worked on anything, <laughs> just to get off topic, where I would say almost every single actor that came into our trailer when we first met them could not believe that they were going to be on a Christopher Nolan film. Like I have experiences where cast yeah they're excited but they don't express it like these guys were it was like a bucket list situation for actors to work with that director they just were like pinching themselves going I cannot believe I'm here and so that just creates such a positive energy and attitude throughout the entire shoot because they are so amped to be there they're so excited by everything but it also makes our job a little bit easier because they're just like yeah whatever Chris wants me to do with my hair I'll do it (laughs) so you're like yay (laughs) this is making life so much easier so there wasn't too much long conversations about compromise and all that type of stuff because they were just like whatever needs to happen I'm so excited to be here which was great so was it ever a case of like, uh, Christopher's asked for you to shave your head, please, should we go ahead or? <laughs> no, I mean, there was. <laughs> just like a prank on people just to see how far you could take it. Uh, no, I think he did that with a, with a crew member who had to um, stand in, like we had to use the back of his head for something to match somebody. And he wanted to get the message to the crew member that um, something needed to happen that was extreme and I was like I'm not playing that trick on him he's like go on I want to see how loyal he is I was like stop it we're not doing (laughs) (laughs) I'm not gonna freak him out but we I mean we did do some interesting stuff to people in the way of shaving like Dylan who plays Oppenheimer's younger brother his hairline is adjusted like I took his hairline back and thinned the front of his hair for the entire film so he has an incredibly lush head of hair and a beautiful full hairline but because we knew that towards the end of the film and with the aging process that he Frank actually ended up pretty sparse on top so we needed to start him on that journey and there's you know Dylan this young good looking guy with beautiful head of hair and I'm just like I have to make you look like you're thinning a little and he's just like yeah fine let's do it just the he was just totally into it and then it's the same thing with Robert Downey Jr so we completely changed the top of his head to make him look like he has half the amount of hair that he actually has and took his hairline back so they were doing things that that they had to live with in their own lives when they weren't at work shooting it wasn't like it was just a wig that was being taken on and off or anything like that so yeah even though people are very open about it uh, because of who they're working for is there still a slight hesitation to go ahead with where you 
you talk to someone about thinning their hair and putting their hairline back just because as men hair on our head is a very sort of like touchy subject and i know people don't like to go uh, bald some people own mm-hmm. it some people hide it just find mm-hmm. each to their own but when mm-hmm. you're working with someone who has a lush set of hair it mm-hmm. is there a way of you sort of reiterating that like we're doing this but it's not going to affect you later on down the line yeah i mean you you have that conversation you know he wants to know all the details you go through the normal the normal process of I was fully explaining like what we're going to ha- do and then I'd be like we'll just do it little bit by little bit we'll see you know we'll get a feel for it I'll start here and I'll move my way back and we'll we'll find a happy place we'll do it a little bit we'll show Chris we'll see if he wants to go further and of course Chris would always be like just a little further um and it's easing you know it was easing Dylan into it the funny thing is that he lived with that for the entire run of the shoot and very quickly he was just like I don't even remember what my hairline used to look like he's just like I'm this is fine he's just like I'm just used to it now (laughs) so you know you get yeah I guess you get used to it he was pretty chill about the whole thing um Robert Downey Jr on the other hand he was all about it he was like let's do this he's like I want to I want to do it let's do it so he just jumped straight in yeah because I'm looking at you the list I was looking at the your Instagram post with him um, on it and it's like having the real life uh, character him in character and then him just sort of a normal and looking at the sort of transformations just incredible and yeah it is just like looking at it you just think like wow that you people have the lengths that people would go through to get into character is like they'll go and get rid of their hairline and it does look it does look incredible I think the thing too is when you're working with Chris he's not he wants to avoid wigs, not a big wig fan. Um, and he wants to avoid prosthetic appliances where possible. So if there was a way to get Robert Downey Jr.'s hair to look like Lewis Strauss and have it grey and thinned like that through the top without using prosthetics and a wig, he was just like, that's the route I want to take. So it's just like, okay, cool. That's awesome. Otherwise, I think we probably just would have slicked Downey's hair down and combed it back. Like, a, so I think you just have to, when you don't, if you, when you can't rely on all the tricks in the bag, like the, the the actual pieces, like prosthetics and and hair pieces, then you kind of gotta yeah adjust their their hair. So I can imagine, like with like as you said with like prosthetics you might have to slick people's hair back or even with wigs you have to uh, adjust them in a certain way or measure people's heads and have them sit properly and then not show their proper hair this is kind of did lead to another question was about if there was a lot of wig work on the film but i think you answered that indirectly um (laughs) by saying christopher doesn't like to work with it that much (laughs) he doesn't like to no so we didn't i mean killian had a we called it the rug at one point. So between when we see him young with his longer curly mop of hair, which is a perm, beautiful perm, to when we see him as the Oppenheimer that everybody knows with the hat and the pipe and all that kind of stuff, there was an in-between length. Um, so we used a little hairpiece then. And then on Killian, we used a wig for the when you see him when he is at his oldest age so it's like 1991 I think and he has the old age prosthetics and he has 
it's his hair on the sides and back and they put a flesh um what they call cow on top so it's like yeah a prosthetic piece that goes from the forehead and covers the top of the head and then I put on a thinning gray hair piece like toupee on top of that so you can see through it and when you see through it you're seeing flesh instead of his dark hair underneath so that's the only time hair pieces and wigs and kitty had a like a little hair piece at the back for her older stuff and frank who plays the younger brother he had a hair piece in 1991 as well and then good old gary oldman truman had a hair piece as well so yeah not as many not as many wigs as what i'm normally working with and emily blunt would have loved to have worn a wig because she didn't particularly feel great. She wasn't, she didn't love the idea of cutting her hair shorter and going darker because she likes to keep her hair blonde. That was a little bit of a conversation between her and Chris that there was, you know, they had to do the compromise thing and there was a discussion back and forth. So I think she was the only one that that discussion was kind of happening with. Of She said, why can't we just use wigs? <laughs> and he's like, I don't want to. <laughs> And she's like, mm, okay. And I think it's only, it's not because she doesn't like to be a brunette. It's just simply the fact that hair can only take so much, you know, with it coloring it darker. She knew that her next job, she needed to be lighter again. So then lightening that back out. So, you know, she's just thinking of her, the integrity of her hair and what it needs to go through to get to where she needs to go for her next job. So she's thinking very practically in that way so we just didn't we made sure we didn't go as dark as actual kitty oppenheimer's hair was we kept her not blonde but not as dark as their actual kitty so we found that compromise and what worked for being able to lighten emily's hair back up again so with the i've got another follow-up question but i think you're Mm. right when you're talking about the hair coloring um Mm. because i know some people who would have if you when they were younger they used to dye their hair quite a lot so it'd start falling out and i can't really imagine what like the damage would be if you kept dying back and forth back and forth with people's hair and as i said it's always going to be a touchy subject um if something goes wrong with it but at the same time uh, there'll be a compromise that people would be able to talk through and go through but on the subject of wigs, how does styling a wig differ from styling natural hair? I'm guessing with like a wig, it's all kind of already set in terms of just putting on somebody's head. Is that correct? Or is there more to it when it comes to getting the right look for whoever's wearing a wig? So <laughs> when you get a wig in your possession, and even if it's a custom made wig for your actor, um, it doesn't come pre-done. It doesn't come the right length. It will probably be the right color. Sometimes I like to adjust color a little bit after camera tests and stuff like that. You might be like, oh, it needs a little more dimension or I need the roots a little darker or whatever it is. But we're responsible for cutting it and then styling it. So it also needs to be, I like to wash my wigs. Like if they've worked for two or three days, I want to wash and reset them. But when you're styling a wig, it's not only styling the hair itself, like the length of it. Um, You also have to set it with growth pattern and direction because you're mimicking nature. Like that's one of the hardest things there is to do and luckily we already have the base of that which is the wig that has been beautifully made and sometimes 
not beautifully made because it's like a pre-made thing off the shelf because you need to use something cheap and cheerful. <laughs> but when you have it custom made, the wig maker and yourself, you know, I you talked about where you want the crown, what the hairline direction should be and all that type of stuff. So they can knot it and make it in a way that gives you that base of hair growth direction and everything in it. But if you don't set it with that in mind, that's when your wigs can get a little on the funky side because you you can't just put it on somebody's head and be like, yeah, it's great. You still have to set it and get it to look real because everyone has different hair growth directions. And But there's some things that hair doesn't do. You know, like if you, for example, around the temples, if you look at somebody or anybody's hair, there's probably there might be somebody on the planet, but there's going to be very few people whose hair grows directly up at the temples. Like that hair direction just doesn't happen. Or if like just in front of the ears, like the little sideburn area, hair doesn't tend to grow up out of the head that way. And then if you style a wig like that without thinking about hair growth patterns and how things can look a little more natural, it, you put it on someone and if the hair's sticking up in the temple area, someone people are going to look at it and be like, there's something funky going on here and I can't figure out what it is, but it draws your eye to it because it's an unnatural direction. So I guess that's the difference. You're not only setting the hair of the style, but also setting the growth patterns. Yes. You're going to make me, you know what, you're going to make me, when I'm going to be on public transport now, look at people's temples and see how their hair is going to grow and wonder, this is going to be ingrained in my mind now to look out for people and hairlines and <laughs> how it I all teach works. people. <laughs> and make sure that it's like, is that true? Do you think they've got a wig on? I'm not sure. Um, but that's <laughs> quite like, interesting to hear. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing. It's just like, I remember the first time somebody spoke to me about it and it was about facial hair and um, it was Rick Finn later and he had facial hair. So he had a short beard and he was like in the mirror. He's like, see, you know, like on, on my cheeks, it all grows in this direction, but you know, on my neck, there are some areas that kind of grow up and this grows over that way. And this is, he's just like, it's not all growing in the same direction. I have, a growth pattern is like, and that's what you have to think about. Like, you know, when you're laying hair on the face or creating facial hair or whatever it is, and you just, you know, move that over into wig work. And it's, I have, I do wig workshops in LA and that's one of my big things is, yeah, I tell people to, you know, like when you're at the supermarket, just <laughs> look at people's hairlines, look at their growth patterns, just start paying attention. I'm going to start doing that now because I've because when I look at my pathetic facial hair when it grows, it's like it grows in patches in certain spots and I always think, mm-hmm. well, maybe I can get something done to try grow a full beard or actually have those bits filled. But then now I'm going to look at other people's, hopefully not get caught staring at them, even though it's just <laughs> yeah. more of a it's an assignment. It's an assignment. Somebody told me to look at facial hair. Yeah. <laughs> but... As your uh, department head of hair, what's the collaboration process with the makeup department? What are the conversations and design processes like when you're talking to the makeup head of department? So on Oppenheimer, 
It was a little bit different. Chris works in a way that I, I loved it. I was just like, this should happen on every film. So every time a cast member came in for a costume fitting, because normally cast will see costume first for their initial measurements and fittings and stuff like that. And then they go back for two or three more fittings with costume after that. And it's normally towards the ends of, end of those fittings that that's when hair and makeup would step in and see them. But Chris loved for the cast to, they were coming to Universal Studios, they would go to costume. Chris would be in those fittings with the costume designer. Um, so that was also his time to have a chat with the actor about the character and, you know, do you feel like, does this work? You know, all that, though, all those kinds of conversations. And then just outside of that door would be myself and Louisa Abel, who's the makeup designer. And then um, the props guy as well. So with watches or glasses or anything that the character may have or want to have um and then once they were in costume we would kind of come in towards the end of it and then there would be a hair and makeup discussion so it would be happening with all of us in the room so no information was kind of lost uh, no one missing out on anything and those discussions could happen with the cast with chris and with louisa and i which was incredibly helpful because you kind of walked away from those fittings having a reasonably clear direction on what needed to happen for that actor to prep them and get them ready to shoot. And I would know what Chris was wanting and I would know what Louisa was wanting. And then um, every now and again, depending on what was needed, then after that fitting, Louisa and I would chat about the best way to kind of um, execute it, I suppose. And because a lot of the characters, we see them over... Um, a span of time there was story arcs and like a, a timeline of them aging so it was also having those discussions and finding out with Louisa and Chris working out where those changes happen within the script. Well it's quite fascinating to hear about the having the various departments in on those on those fittings because I guess you're all there to get that sort of information firsthand rather than it trickle through and yeah. might get the sort of like the wrong end of the stick or something uh, with it. But at the same time, I guess if you're all there, then you all can sort of just make notes of what you need. And it's quite yeah. interesting to hear props being there for with their watches and then oh. um, costume having everything set up for the actors and then just how everybody's going to look and feel and the sort of, a game that everyone's going to bring yeah so it wouldn't be it would be like possibly the next fitting that they would come in with costume then we would like I would would do a um, preliminary like haircut on them or try different styles and all that type of stuff take videos photo um sometimes Chris would come down and see them but a lot of the time he'd be happy with just getting some video footage and photos and stuff of them to be like just you know like this is what we discussed and this is what we've done like is there you know you try a couple of different styles maybe like with the gents maybe one style is more natural and the other you might use a little more product and just kind of get that feedback from Chris afterwards as to what direction he wants to go in and making sure to ask the actor of course like what their thoughts are so if Chris says which one did did he like better? You can be like, oh, he actually likes the no product look. And he'll be like, yeah, well, let's go with that then. But it is a the communication and 
working together with the makeup department is incredibly important and I love it. And I think it's just coming from that background of doing both. I think it's, it has to happen if there's a, yeah, if there's that gap there, it doesn't, it just doesn't flow as well. I find it incredibly frustrating if the communication's not open and the willingness to kind of work together on it. They are the same thing. They are together. They are done together. <laughs> Having, I guess you need to have the right look for what people how people would look in terms of the makeup but then also having the hair sort of sit in a certain naturalistic way so it doesn't you know you don't mix the two together and i don't know just don't not not one person sort of overshadows the other basically yeah and it's just sometimes you can if you're having that communication with somebody it depends on the it depends on the job as well but it's just kind of like like for example when we were when I was working on Babylon because Damien Chazelle didn't want everything to look super 20s like he wanted to stay away from the idea of what you thought the 20s looked like hair and makeup costume wise that com- communication was really important between myself the costume designer and the makeup designer, because if I was going to lean heavier into the twenties look, then maybe the makeup would stay away from it. Or if they were leaning into a twenties makeup, then maybe the hair would go the other way, just so we didn't end up with a character that was very 1920s looking and looking exactly how Damien didn't want them to look and that went right through every background player right through to cast so um having that balance and that communication is yeah it's vital has to happen yeah and even with like a film like this where I've read that like the film took 57 days to shoot which is crazy to think when a film's like runtime is three hours that's like I think you're averaging three or four pages a day of some sort and with them being quite heavy dialogue scenes like I can imagine that everybody has to sort of be working uh, really hard towards that but with that in mind like how does a typical shoot day look for you and your team like how do you stay on top of the period changes and the scenes that are being shot that day well just being onto it paying attention <laughs> I think and uh, Christopher Nolan works in a way that that is demanded of you. you you have to have your shit together you have to know what is going on what every scene is what order it's in what your changes hair and makeup changes might be you have to be ready and on it uh, and I just feel like that should just I mean that's our job anyway but um you definitely feel the pressure of it more so with Chris he has like high expectations which I love (laughs) but as for keeping on top of changes and things so we do a script breakdown at the very beginning so you you have your script and you break it down and it's just like you're creating a type of timeline and we know with Oppenheimer that the time is all over the place so we needed to understand an order to things especially when we were doing aging and seeing the progression of time. So it's breaking it down and understanding what story day or what script day these changes happen. And you have, each character has their own breakdown. So Killian, who is playing Robert Oppenheimer, he, you know, he has his own breakdown as far as hair is concerned. You know, I know that from 1927 and 1928, he has the longer hair. So that scene, whatever and whatever. And then, you know, from this 
time to this time he has the mid-length hair and then from this time to this time he has this short kind of buzz cut look and then we start adding gray and styling it differently so it's all broken down in this whole timeline and it's on a document that I had access to digitally and also in paper so in person that even if the scene orders changed within the day um, like we're going to, you know, do scene 54 before 73 now. So what does that mean for you? It just means that I can look at that breakdown quickly and go, oh, well, I'm going to need 20 minutes to, because I need to put his hairpiece on um, or I need to, you know, airbrush the sides of his hair darker because I've got to cover his gray for this because he's younger or whatever. So it's just, you, you have to have it it's like doing your homework you just you have to have an idea of your character's story arc and their journey and doing that breakdown it just means that if I haven't normally I haven't memorized the whole thing but I have a pretty good idea of where everything sits but I have that document the breakdown to be able to refer to so you're just ready with that information to be able to let whoever know that you need 20 minutes for a change or you've got to do this or that so the day kind of starts ridiculously early you have your cast come in you get them ready you go to set you watch them all day you do your last looks just like my podcast is called (laughs) which means that they do a, a camera rehearsal the cast get to figure out everything that their actions this that where they are standing in the room all that type of stuff looking at you know lighting and this and that And then we're kind of the last ones to go in. So just before they start shooting, they call last looks and hair, makeup, costume, and normally props will go in and do any final adjustments that need to be done. And that's just pretty much what you're doing throughout the day. And yeah, if your character has changes, then you're doing those changes. If we have cast come in halfway through the day, then someone's going back to the trailer to get them ready. And yeah, that's just working as quickly and as efficiently as humanly possible because um that's how Chris works he is he's a fast shooter where he'll spend the time where he needs the time but there were there were times when we were out in New Mexico out in those big vast open areas outside and they had three or four different sets you know like kind of van ride away from each other and we would finish a scene it's just like okay we're going to the bunker and before you know it but everyone is over there. They're set up, ready to go, and you have to you have to be fast along with them. Otherwise, you won't get those last looks, and you'll miss out. When when you hear answer like that, it just shows how important your prep time is, and um, how prepared you need to be when you're going on to each day. Um, yeah, I mean, you can <laughs> fumble your way. You could fumble your way through it and kind of stand there and go. Oh, when does that? What does that? You know, I just I don't want to be that person. That's all. But then also, your name gets spread around that you're not someone who who's prepared when it comes to it. But it's but then but it's also just fascinating the amount of time how to keep up with the changes if there's certain cast coming in, who's not coming in, uh, what time period you're in because you're as you say you need to bring your A game. And if somebody like Christopher Nolan is a fast shooter, then you need to be ready for when for for the scene and even before getting into your last looks it's the what's it called it's like the prep of getting a cast member in and as he said as well starting early which is always never ideal an ideal thing 
<laughs> I think it's as well, it's just, you know, you're doing things like we had a whole bunch of stuff on a train for Oppenheimer, but so between Oppenheimer and Groves and there was, I had a change with Killian during that. It's just like, and we know that we only have the train for one day. We're doing all of that stuff in one day. We also are relying on daylight and it's getting towards the end of the day. And it's pretty much just like, you know, the ADs will, that conversation starts heading towards me and they're like, we know that you've got to put a hairpiece on Killian. How long is that going to take? And it's just like... Well, you know how long it always normally takes, but yeah, okay. I'm like, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, as fast as I humanly possibly can. And, you know, it's just like finding a space in the train to set up a, a little, just a fold-out chair so I have enough room to kind of circle him and get around him. Um, Having my key, Ahu, with holding everything and passing me everything. And it's just, you know, the train is moving and rock and rolling back and <laughs> side to side and all that kind of stuff and it's just that thing of it's it's like a race it's almost like you have like a stopwatch on you because all the ad's and pa's are pretty much just like burning holes into the back of your head just like hurry up we're running out of daylight we're running out of daylight and you just work as fast as you possibly can so you just have to be ready for that as well it's just like you know so i knew that when i went on the train that day that i needed all of the equipment that i need to do the change on killian if i didn't have all of that stuff with me and it's just like i'm saying i have to take him back to the trailer it's like it's not going to happen they're not going to get their day like that's it's either his hair's not going to be right in continuity or they don't get the day so it's going to be me that loses out and his hair's not going to be right in the scene. And I've let my director down by not being prepared. So yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that I think a lot of people possibly think how, how glamorous and kind of easy the hair, you're like, Oh, you're in the hair department. You just play around with hair all day and make it pretty. And it's just like, um, <laughs> there's a lot of, a lot of prep and a lot of paperwork and a lot of other stuff that is involved, not just the physical actually doing of hair. When you have those days where you're on a location or you only have something for one day and you have those people just putting all that pressure on you, it's not nice because you, you as you said, you're going to work as quick as humanly as possible because you, you want to make sure that somebody's going to be right for screen. So when they sit down, you do one last check, done, rather than, oh, this is not right, let's go back, do it again or and whatnot. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard too sometimes when you're doing that change and you're doing it for the first time. Like you, like, I mean, that didn't happen in that specific situation. Like I had put that piece on Killian multiple times by that point. So I was able to just like smash it out. But sometimes you're in that position and you're like, I haven't done this hairstyle, like that I've tested it once. I haven't even, I don't know, you know, and they're like, how long is it going to take? And you're like, as, as fast as I can possibly do it. Like, I promise you, I'm not going to fuck around. Like I will go as fast as I can. And a lot of the times they're walking away and I'm just looking at them going, oh God, I hope that looks okay on camera. <laughs> and all you can do is just kind of hold your breath and cross your fingers and be like, oh, please, I hope that's okay. Cause that was done really fast. And that's what I think people need to also be forgiving about when it comes to watching film and television, that if something is looking funky, there may be a very good reason why. It may not be because the hairstylist or the makeup artist is just useless at their job. It may be because they were losing light and they were not given the time to do what they needed to do. 
there's so many different reasons as to why something might look how it does and the end result. So be nice. <laughs> <laughs> You've really perfectly segued to my next question because there's a lot of hat wearing in a film. Yeah. And sometimes a hat might blow off um, as we have with the scene with Albert Einstein. How do you prepare an actor's hair for if they're going to wear a hat? Because you don't want to damage the costume itself, but then also you don't want the costume to ruin your work as well. There's there's different scenarios. Like this, if the hat's going on and it's staying on, amazing. I'm like, this is awesome. My job just got easier. I'm going to go get a snack. <laughs> or there is the, okay, they're going to start with the hat on in the scene and it's going to come off. Depending on what kind of damage that hat does to the hair really depends on the prep of it. I mean, you can just, it's as simple as just saying you can do what you can do. But as going back to what I was saying earlier with my idea of realism, I don't mind if there are marks from the hat. I mean, you literally just saw them have a hat on and it's come off. And if there's not a little hat here, then it's kind of weird. I don't mind seeing it. So it depends what it is. And as far as where the Albert Einstein situation was concerned, that was on purpose. So they had a whole rig to have his hat come off, blow off in the wind. So that was a a whole gag that we knew that was going to be happening. And, you know, we just each time before the hat goes back on, we do a little reset. So we just have to frizz up his hair underneath a little so it didn't get like flatter and flatter and flatter and flatter as the um, scene went on. So it's just trying to reset it so the start position is always the same. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yes, yes. So like it's like the continuity of it all. As long as you start in the same position, you're like the hair starts in the same way, no matter what the action is throughout that scene, hopefully you have a better chance of it landing the same way during or towards the end. But if you just let it go and you just let that hat keep being smashed back on and back on and back on the hair, it's just going to get flatter and flatter and flatter. So it's just going in in between takes and kind of zhuzhing it up a bit and making sure that it, yeah, the starting point is the same. I know it's just probably like a silly question to ask, but it was just something that popped into my mind during the during the film and how how it would affect someone's design and look and how they'll take it off. And you're right that you'd have to take into consideration the hat hair and the mm. positioning of how somebody would wear the hat. And, and they are very specific hats as well. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's definitely good to know the costume department will normally absolutely give you a heads up that it's going to be happening. And it might be that with Albert Einstein, for instance, with um, Tom Conti, he has the most incredible head of hair. Oh my God. So that's all his hair. That is not a wig. <laughs> he, yeah, we wanted to make sure that it wasn't filled with um, too much product or anything that the hat would kind of mold it too much to be too hat hairy I guess as a way of saying it so it's just yeah it's planning you're like oh he's going to be wearing a hat today is it coming off no is it coming off yes we're going to see it happen in in shot you can't always rely on the facts you know might get to set and the director might be like I don't want him to wear a hat so it might be that you ask costume to maybe just leave the hat off until you get to set just so you don't you know, have to double up on your on your work. But yeah. 
this interest into here and fascinating to find <laughs> out as silly as it is of a question. The film itself as well, it was partially shot in black and white. I know for certain departments, like art department, if they're set dressing or even costume with the colours that they use might mm. be affected. But does shooting black and white affect, does this style affect the way that you would design hair or is it just still the same? I think in this case it did not so much affect the design, but I just had to be aware of not only color tone, because a lot of it you saw color versions and black and white versions, so that the color tone of something like Robert Downey Jr.'s hair, for instance, that because the black and white, just to explain that why there's a black and white in the color, so the color is more from Oppenheimer's vantage point. And the black and white is more from Lewis Strauss's memory of things. So anytime you see it in black and white, it's kind of Lewis Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, his view of how things went down. And when you see it in colour, it's more of how Robert Oppenheimer remembers things happening. Hence the kind of swap back and forth sometimes. So with Robert Downey Jr.'s hair, because I, when he's younger, he still has the thinning hair, but we style it slightly different. It's a little more fluffy. Um, it is a darker gray. Um, and then we see him towards the end of the story and it's kind of a slicked back and it's more of a whiter gray. So that was all happening with airbrushing. So I just knew in the black and white world that, I mean, I could have, I could have airbrushed his hair red, but depending on the how much red or the tone of red would have depended on how white or gray, dark gray his hair looked. But I just, I was concerned, I think, design wise on how gray would look on my cast because I had to paint a lot of gray hairs on people because once again, Chris didn't want to use wigs. So normally when somebody, you know, you're doing a, a film where there's a big span of time and people are aging and all that kind of stuff. You might get to a point where, okay, they're pretty gray now, like the salt and pepper, it's, it's happening. You would then maybe transition into a wig. So for it to look like their head of hair, but with a whole bunch of gray going on, Chris didn't want to do that. He wanted me like wanted us to paint as much as we could, which was, I think that's what I was most terrified when I went to go see the film. <laughs> I didn't know how it was going to translate. I didn't, I was watching it in dailies and seeing if I could read it. But, you know, when hair goes white or gray, it has a translucency to it. When you're painting hair with different like white and silver pens and things like that and ink colors and airbrushing and all that type of stuff, it, it's a paint that sits on top of the hair. So you don't have that translucency to it. So I just wasn't sure how it was going to read with the black and white. So I think that was the trickiest for me that I had to try and find a middle ground for that graying to work with black and white, but also with color because it may be that on the same day in the same scene, they're going to shoot some of it black and white and some of it color. Um, and they just wouldn't have the time for us to like be adjusting with painting and stuff. Luckily, because Chris is who Christopher Nolan is and understands the film side of everything far more than I ever will, um, he was able to give me kind of guidance on no, I think you need to bump it up a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more and kind of do that. There was certainly no um, 
it never felt like I was being told off for like, you haven't put on enough gray. It was just like, I'd get it to a point and be like, Chris, is this enough? And he'd be like, maybe just amp it up a little on the temples. I think it'll read a little better. And it was just going to him to be able to be like, you know. And then sometimes he'd bring his DOP Hoyter into the conversation as well. He'd be like, how do you think this is, do you think this is going to read enough? Do you think, does Jamie Lee need to bump it up a bit more? And they would have a conversation. It was just that collaboration of trying to find the level to for it to read properly on screen. With black and white, it's mm. always fascinating to hear the different different obstacles different departments have to jump and cross when creating it. Because I think as an audience member, when you think of black and white, it would just be the most simplest thing. Oh, it's mm. fine. You could just still use the same colors and yeah. still do the same, same stuff. You just need to, then you just do it in black and white. But yeah. even getting your DOP involved to say, oh, is this enough? Do you think, do you think this will mm. look great? But yeah. as you said as well, the the worry of seeing it, going from seeing it in dailies to actually seeing the final thing because you're kind of you're 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 doing that dance as well that you're doing this aging and it's just like if somebody obviously has like aged in their face because of whatever makeup reason and the gray isn't reading or makeup was relying on that they could not do as much aging makeup but you would they were relying on the graying of the hair to show through to show age then you kind of feel like it really has to read how you want it or need it to at the end of the day. But what's also awesome is that's the first black and white that's been done on the IMAX 70 millimeter. So that's kind of cool as well. Yes, which is something that I thought would have happened by now, but I guess with the use of IMAX is mainly for uh, big action action scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no need for it, but I think using it for, for just sort of like a talky drama and be having all of these sort of big facial expressions projected on the sort of biggest screens possible has actually made it feel that like IMAX could be used not just for action, but also for these sort of more emotive stories, should we say? Just to wrap up the episode, what was your favorite look to design? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. That sounds bad. I think I just love all of it so much. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think I just what I really enjoyed about doing Oppenheimer was was those timeline challenges. So the progression with the aging and everything like, like that. I just really enjoyed that challenge overall, like on all of the cast. So it's such a collaborative um, effort with my team and myself to get everybody into those right levels um and I think I just really enjoyed that across the board and the fact that it was period like I love period work so and I had amazing background supervisors to help me get all of those people through the works they were creating some kind of miracles making sure everybody was looking amazing on camera so just seeing them all dressed up and in period costume and on the sets and all that kind of stuff you kind of get transported to another time so it's all so much fun. I guess it's like picking your favourite child, right? Um, it's very difficult and you don't know which one to choose from. But I think, yeah, the, the film looks incredible with, you know, from production design, cinematography to hair and makeup. So especially when you have such a big cast as well. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, luckily for us, it was a lot of dudes. It's a lot of guys. 
So <laughs> fair enough. I'm guessing yeah. they're a lot easier to do than female actors. When it comes to period stuff, yeah, I mean, you got to keep on top of their haircuts and you know all that type of stuff. But there wasn't, we didn't, weren't needing to do like ridiculous amounts of roller sets on cast. That was more background. Background was heavier with um, female talent. But yeah, it was a, it was a, a men's party that a few chicks got invited to. So it's <laughs> <laughs> <That was> fun. <laughs> Jamie, thank you so yeah. much for your time today. Uh, Oppenheimer's out now. Make sure you see it on the biggest screen possible. Thank you once again, Jamie. Thank you so much. This has been fun. And don't forget to check out Jamie's podcast, The Last Looks Podcast, which is all on different streaming services like Apple, YouTube, on Android. Please go check that out as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.